This episode brought to you by Audible, and today you can receive a free audiobook and 30-day free trial by visiting audibletrial.com slash sports. Listen to your audiobook anywhere, anytime. Taking sports to another level. Welcome to Rich Take on Sports, the sports podcast with life. Exploring the latest headlines and going behind the scenes with in-depth interviews, hearing personal stories and the impact of sports in their lives. Here's your host, Richmond Weaver. What time is it? This is episode 51. I am your host, Richmond Weaver, and glad you're listening through whatever format that might be. And thanks for being an investor by investing your time to listen. Sometimes things in life are not exactly what they seem, and there's a saying, there's more than meets the eye, which is just another way of saying that there might be things underneath that are more important than those things that you actually get to see. Now, this is so true in sports, especially when you're talking about player contracts, salary caps, collective bargaining, player unions, and the list goes on and on. And our guest this episode just happens to be one of those guys that has become an expert in seeing those important details that we don't see in the NBA, especially when dealing with contracts contracts and salary caps, and that's Eric Pincus. Eric is known as an NBA expert, capologist, and you can find him laying out all of the details when it comes to the NBA salary cap on basketballinsiders.com as well as NBA TV. Now, he's also the lead Lakers writer for Bleacher Report, and you can also find him co-hosting Hollywood Hoops on Nothing But Net Radio. And now, episode 51 with Eric Pincus. Well, Eric, I greatly appreciate your time, and I'm not sure if I'm pulling you away more from your role as an NBA insider with all of the latest trade news that we've had, or from your basketball coaching prowess with your daughter's basketball team. <laughs> no, if if if, uh, if it was a coaching day, I wouldn't have scheduled it. No, we only have we only have 45 minutes a week, and then I I take the girls outside. We only have the gym for 45 minutes every Wednesday. I take the girls to the outside courts for another. 15 to 30 minutes and that's all we get. So, uh, it, it's a very brief time I've got with these nine, 10, 11 year old girls. I got to teach them how to play basketball in a very short time. So you've got your work cut out for you. There is no doubt about that with that short amount of time. That's for sure. And I know that's got to be, you know, somewhat of uh, herding cats, keeping everybody organized. True. But, um, I have some returning players. I've got 10 players, five I've had before. One's my daughter, obviously. And, uh, and a couple have been on her school team. So uh, I have a, a little bit of a, well, once I get them for a, more than one season, we build upon what we did the last. And so, yeah, I've got, uh, I've got three rookies who have never played at any level before, not even in a little gym with a lower basket. Uh, they're, they're, you, you just have to find ways to give them concrete things to work on, concrete things, concrete roles in the game so they know what they're doing, whether they're, capable of doing a lot isn't the point but find something specific for them to do really encourage them and after a season or two with them you find what they can do and, and you and you uh next thing you know they're one of the better players and i gotta fight with the park to keep them because they want our team gets too good <laughs> and then they want to spread out the talent around the league now was there a, a 
part of you that has always wanted to coach in some capacity that led you to coaching your daughter? Obviously, I know there's an aspect of being able to coach your own child, but what about the coaching just in general for you? Well, I, you know, when I grew up, I played more football. I played more baseball. Uh, I grew up truly a baseball fan. That was really my, my passion until maybe after, through elementary school and on. By, by the time I got to high school, I started to shift a little bit, played football, uh, and started to love basketball and that sort of became the, the sport and I was never particularly that, that good at it. And I think sometimes that's why it's, I guess it's the, the idea of, of, uh, doing something you don't know versus something you do. So I, I, I wanted to learn a lot about, about something. I knew a lot about baseball. I knew a lot about football, but I didn't know as much about basketball. So, uh, I, I just wanted to learn about it as far as coaching and saying, did I want to coach? I mean, my, my, I have three daughters and at some point my wife put them into basketball over at the park when they were real young. And, and she kind of pushed me into it and said, you're going to go ahead and, and coach this team. Now I, I was helping out a little bit with some of the, the coach. I'd just be there. I'd go to practices and I'd, I'd be the, the dad who was really eager to help out, but wouldn't step in there, you know, wouldn't step in their way and, and wouldn't just whatever you need. You want me to uh, be a dummy man on defense. You want me to kick the rebound? And uh, at some point, my wife said, "You got to, you got to get out there and you got to coach." And so she signed me up <laughs> before <laughs> I even said yes, which is really how my wife is, which is a you know a good thing, uh, a blessing for me. And and so uh, because I yeah, I'm, I'm somebody who if I'm going to do something, I'm going to do my best to do it the right way and to do it uh, organized. And I, I'm I'm good at communicating with. The parents, I, I know how to raise kids because I've got, like I said, three daughters. So I, I, I'm good with kids and, and, uh, and I know basketball because I've been around it. I spent years covering, I still do covering the Lakers. So I spent years with Phil Jackson and, and Mike D'Antoni and I can go through the list or Doc Rivers or Mike Dunleavy. And then all the coaches who were visiting, visiting coaches who came in and have asked tons of questions and through the years have learned enough that I say that. I know enough. I don't know. I know a lot that I don't know. And I know there are people who know things a lot more than I do, but I'm definitely at a point where I can coach nine, 10 and 11 year, year old girls at a high level. I don't know if it would ever go more than that or if we'll go to high school or anything like that. But in the nit, the niche that I've got right now, I'm good at what I do. And it sounds like you're enjoying it as well. And I know sometimes you do just need that push where your wife kind of pushed you along into that. And you've obviously been around some of the most recognized names in coaching, as you'd mentioned with the Phil Jacksons of the world. But going back to growing up, what was it for you in terms of why you gravitated towards playing sports like football and basketball? What made you fall in love with sports just in general? Well, it, it probably dates back to some family growing up. My uncle, I had two uncles uh, who were just diehard New York Mets fan. And I'm originally from New York and I moved out to LA when I was probably like almost seven, somewhere in that range. So very young, but enough that I, I, at that point I was a diehard Mets fan and they, back then they were, in seventh place and they don't even have seventh place anymore in baseball because they realigned, <laughs> but they were just terrible. And then very, you know, a couple of years in, and after a while they ended up winning in 86 and that was really a joy. Uh, and at some point I actually got season tickets to the Dodgers and that was my wife and I, our first date was to a Dodger game, but, 
I, I think just from an early age, I was really into the sport of baseball. My uncle taught me how to keep score at a game, the old school style. And it was just something that was fun. I mean, it's, I, I think everyone likes little dramas and stories, stories that have conclusions that are tragedies, that are successes, that are glorious. And, I, and we see that in movies and television and books and all the things that we have as entertainment. And this is just another form of that. Uh, it's all improvised. It's all live. Uh, none of it's premeditated as far as outcome. Some people might want to claim otherwise in some sports. I, I don't know, wrestling or something like that, or <laughs> some will say boxing. I my experience is, uh, is that basketball, uh, it's such a great story. I think a lot of us expected this last year, the Warriors and the, and the Cavaliers score the finals and they did. And a lot of us expected the Cavs to win and they did or rather the Warriors to win and they did. But, um, along the way, there were a lot of really just so many wonderful stories that happened team by team and from where, from some trying to succeed, some trying to break, strip it down all at different places in the life cycle of the team. I just fell in love with that relatively early, more from baseball, love playing football. I remember the pressures of being a high school student, uh, being an elementary school student, even because I started playing with friends, uh, like seventh, eighth grade when, when there's all the pressure of all the, the school projects and all the things that you have to do, uh, to get out there and to just run around and exert yourself. It's, it's, it was a joy. So something I always enjoy doing, I think, and I have a dog. It's like the dog looks to, likes to go outside and run around and play around. <laughs> yeah. I think we're, if we forget that we're, you know, we're, we're animals too. And I think for whatever reason, I think that's part of us is that we need to go out there and exert ourselves that way. And I think sport, organized sport is really one of the great joys out there. Yeah. Now, did you play baseball a lot as well? Is it more of a, from a playing perspective, it was more football? Well, I played baseball all the way through little league and whatnot. Uh, and at some point in high school, I ended up uh, playing football because I, I, for whatever reason, I had a, a knack for it. And I, I, I only did a couple of years. And then at some point, I, uh, I actually had started, interestingly enough, I started DJing parties, playing music at parties back with record players and was making pretty decent money for a kid. I still, something I've done for pretty much my whole life, I, I go to a party and play the music and that that's something that that uh so at some point i had to make a decision when i was growing up between uh i i didn't feel at five foot seven even though you don't have to be terribly tall uh to play football that it probably wasn't my career path and i was smart enough probably to realize that uh it wasn't where i was going to ultimately be whereas i was making pretty decent money and uh and you have to have some level of entrepreneurship in this world so i, I started pretty early on that so at some point I put it aside and said, as much as I love doing it, uh, it's probably best. Also, you know, a few minor injuries, separated shoulder for a second and it, things I still feel today in my body. I got from <laughs> playing high school football. It's, it's, uh, you don't, when you're young, you don't think, Oh, that shoulder injury is going to hurt like 30 years from now or 20 years. I however old I am now. Um, but anyway, yeah, I can imagine the spinning the records was not as impactful on your body at that time, for sure. You would think, although I've had my moments, but yeah, for the most part, it's so much, uh, much. And of course, I, I still have some records somewhere in a crate. Or two, yeah, I was going to uh, ask you, do you ever relics. bring them out and uh, <laughs> showcase your talents to your daughters? No, no. It's Oh, yeah. No, they've seen it. 
I've done some stuff over there at their schools. It's all electronic now. It's all on the computer. So it's very easy. Yeah, much easier now. Now, did you do this um, in college as well when you went to UCLA? Oh, I, I, my, my family has a, a, an event planning company. So this is something I've done all the way through adulthood. So you, you'd be surprised. I can emcee a wedding still if need be. <laughs> it's a last minute resort. I know who to call, right? If I need Absolutely. need somebody for Shotgun a party. Wedding. <laughs> I love it. So when was it then though that you're doing this, you know, for the family business? When was it though that you made the decision that, you know, I want to look at an opportunity of doing some reporting, if you want to call it that, quote unquote reporting for sports and then particularly basketball in the NBA? Well, I, I remember listening to a Chick Hearn game. It was obviously a Laker game, but it was Lakers versus Bulls. It was the Nick, Nick, Sven, Nick Van Exel era in the 90s. And just being in my car listening to Chick Hearn call it, and the Lakers ended up winning that game. Nick Van Exel, I think, was the hero. And I bet some Laker fan who's a diehard would be able to even target what day that was if they really thought about it long enough. There weren't that many Lakers-Bulls games back then, right? It's still just two a year. So, uh and I just, I, I, I fell in love with basketball and, and started to go to Laker games, started to go to Clipper games uh, with, uh, they would have like 10 game packages for the Clippers and that's how they would market it because no one wanted to see the Clippers back then. Uh, and so you could see the Lakers twice, you could see the Bulls, you could see you know, Michael Jordan, you could see uh, the Suns, uh, Charles Barkley, the Knicks, whatever, the best teams would come in. And so I would do that. And I remember watching, there was some, uh, almost like an early uh, reality type TV show where it was behind the scenes at the Clippers. They followed around some fans. They followed around some people with the team. They followed around some players. And they followed around Art Thompson uh, of the Orange County Register. And he, he since has moved on from, from that job. But uh, I was like, oh, wait a second. I'm paying to go to these games. Uh, but they, there's a job where they pay you to go. So that sort of clicked and I was like, well, I, I'm going to have to see about that and see how I can make that happen. And in the early days of the internet, I started writing, uh, for a fan site that was very, they barely fan sites were just cropping up. Yes. Uh, Laker related at the time. Uh, there was, uh, an opening that came up on a site called hoopsworld.com that has since, uh, gone defunct as well. And, uh, but I, I got my start there. And that led to a magazine, which of course is also out. Magazines don't often, don't really exist in, in volume anymore, uh, called Swish Magazine. And uh, at some point the Lakers, well, the Clippers first let me come in under Hoops World and, and start to, uh, to cover the games. And then uh, when we had the magazine, that was enough for the Lakers to let me in. And then over time you, once you're in, you build up relationships. You go from a day pass where you have to request a, a media pass per game uh, to a season pass where you just have, you can go to any game you want. You just got to let them know if you need a seat. And if, if you, even if you don't let them know, you can still show up and go and not sit. You just can go sit in the media room or, or if there's an open seat. So, but over time I, I built an audience and uh, found areas that I was able to offer value that maybe Others weren't specifically uh, understanding the rules uh, of how you build teams and how the collective bargaining agreement works between the players and the, and the, the teams. That's something very specific. And it really 
is the structure by which all how uh, a team is built. How how did Kevin Durant end up on the Warriors? How why did the Lakers just now trade two young players for a draft pick and and uh, a guy in Isaiah Thomas who was having a down season? What's their reasoning and why is it their reasoning? All that kind of stuff. And did you gravitate towards you know the numbers aspect of how teams are built because of earlier on how you enjoyed the numbers aspect of baseball and keeping score? I you could argue that I I I have a a computer background. Uh, I have a, an accounting background for the family business. I've, I've done uh, a lot of software design. I've done a lot of. Uh, the, the accounting for the company for years, the keeping, et cetera, uh, basically everything up to, we have an accountant to file the returns, but I have always, I do all the, the, the number crunching. And so I have that background and I also have obviously the interest in sports and, uh, I, I just, a lot of people, I, I would hear someone on radio or read something in print that was just flat out false. That wasn't possible. And it would be a columnist perhaps urging the team to do something that they can't do because of the rules or a radio blasting the team for their inability to improve the team overnight without really understanding why they couldn't do that. And, uh, I, I was, I would be able to say that's not accurate, but back then it was just me, you know, I, I there was no Twitter yet. <laughs> so I, I would, <laughs> I would tell some people I'd write about it for the, the small circle of influence that I had. But over time I, I got to know, I do a lot of radio and whatnot. Eventually I'd be able to do the the shows and just text the producer or, or, uh, or the host and say, okay, you know, you're, you know, you're barking at the wrong tree here. That's not even possible. And then they'd either say, Oh yeah, come on the show, explain why. Or they'd say, you know, we don't care because it's, getting us listeners anyway, <laughs> which is ridiculous. Uh, and then, uh, on the writing side, same thing. Uh, some of the writers back then who I would say, wait, you're way off. Now they reach out to me before they publish something and just say, Hey, can you check this? Does this make sense? Or can you explain this little facet to me? And I've always been someone who believes that you should share knowledge instead of hoarding it. Uh, I know that there's a lot of, there's a lot of competition, uh, but I don't approach it, approach it from, uh, a hoarding perspective. I'd rather share what I, what I know, try to help as many people put out the right information and hope that I'm recognized as the source of that. And if not, hopefully over time, recognize that I've been uh, a positive influence and that I am willing to share and, and it's worked for me. So for the most part, people have been appreciative of what I do and, and that's perhaps why they had me on NBA TV just this last week. Yeah, and I know there's all types of different forms of media now for you to be able to get your information out there, but did you have a journalism background, though, at UCLA? Or why, again, look at the reporting side of things? Well, in any uh, in any school, uh, if you're Bachelor of Arts, you're going to take a certain amount of humanity, a certain amount of writing, and so I didn't take any formal like journalism program, but I did take some classes on, on writing and journalism, et cetera, all that kind of stuff. So I, I studied, um, and then I did a lot of research on my own independently and spoke to a lot of people in journalism and, and, and found be it the writing styles, like, uh, the AP writing style, uh, which is, has been a standard for a lot. And, and, 
then also studying the ethics of it. How do you, how do you represent a, a source of material? How do you protect that source? What's the right way to do it? When is, when is information, when is it appropriate for you to report that information? If you hear it in passing, if you overhear something, if someone's telling you something in confidence, all the various things. And if someone's demanding, cause I've had a team try to ask me to, to reveal where I got the information. And in one case I didn't care. And I was willing to tell them because it wasn't private. Another one I had to say, no, there's no way I'm, I'm I can't, I can't share that information that you need to talk to my editor if you've got a problem. So there's a certain amount of, um, standing your ground and, and just like in any position, uh, PR people want to tell the story their way. And sometimes they can be difficult if, if you're not towing their line, but that's not my line. My line is to do what my editors are asking me to do is to do what my conscience asked me to do. And then also what the ethics does, you know, say to do. So, uh, some of that, like anything else you can learn, you don't necessarily have to go to uh, Northwestern, although certainly would help. Uh, but you can go to great journalism programs and get a great start. Or you could, in this modern era of uh, the internet, you can pull yourself up from the bootstraps and figure it out as you go. And hopefully uh, use the sensitivity not to make mistakes that kill your career <laughs> along the way. Uh, and so far, so good. I've, I've certainly made my fair share of mistakes. Uh, but I've learned from them, and fortunately, a lot of them were very early in my career when I had a smaller audience. And uh, you just have to you just have to understand how the game is played, and then uh, fit in when you're supposed to. And sometimes, if you have to stand out and and stand up and do something that might hurt your career a little bit or might hurt your relationship a little bit, but is the right thing to do. You got to do that too. Is there one particular mistake that still that you think about this day that, man, I wish I wouldn't have done that. Well, it's, it's fun. I mean, I don't look at things in sort of a, like a negative sense because they're all learning steps along the way. And if you don't make mistakes, you just, you're not going to learn anything. So you can't operate from a place of protection and then you don't get anywhere. So I do remember back, there was uh, someone who I believed to be accurate was telling me that the Lakers and the Pacers were making a trade for Jonathan Bender and I had reported it. And there definitely was some conversation on that line, but I didn't understand back then how often teams have conversations and how little comes out of those conversations. Like you might have a hundred conversations, you might have 200 and only one trade out of all of that or no trade out of all that. So I took something that started with truth, but went too far with it saying it was happening and reported it as such because I didn't, I didn't know at the time that just because it was true doesn't mean it's actually going to happen. And so I learned from that. So I became much more careful and uh, had a better appreciation and understanding of what to report, when to report it, how to report it. And I also shied away from that side of the business, the breaking news business, because if the goal is to write facts, but if by writing that fact, the information comes public, it can actually get in the way of the deal. You're actually, by writing it, making it less true. It's a very strange phenomenon. So you you have to be very careful on when to say what. I'll still break stories. Uh, I don't try to. That's not something I go out and set out to do as far as... um, signings or whatnot. If I stumble across something, cause I know a lot of people and I hear things that are very accurate, uh, I'll, I'll write about it or I'll, or whatever. But 
most of what I break is factual. So I'll write what salaries are. I, I was able, I'm able to break down the trades that happened. How were those trades made? How much cash was transferred between teams? These are stories I'm breaking that no one else is breaking. That's factual. And there's no way to say, like with these trade talks that may or may not happen, there's no going back on it. There's, there's no, oh, I reported it, so now it's not going to happen because one of the teams got spooked that it got reported. So I, I'd rather report facts than some of this gamemanship that teams, and believe me, teams, agents, they all use media for their will, right? They use us to as mouthpieces because if you're too trusting and you just write what they tell you, then you're doing their bidding. My goal is to try to avoid that as best possible. With that, it, can you talk a little bit more about you know that process of when you are looking at utilizing sources on some of these reports and knowing that you're kind of moving away from the breaking news aspect, but you still have sources and you still rely on some of that. So how do you develop that type of relationship and that type of trust that they know and you know that you can trust each other? Right. Uh, there's, there's, it's a tricky thing because, uh, by reporting what one of your, something your source tells you, you could ruin that, that relationship. So you have to be very sensitive to that. And so if someone's telling me something, I'll usually say, I'm going to report this so that they know, so that there's nothing, um, ambiguous about it. And if they say, oh yeah, no, that would be a real problem for me you have to make a decision at some point. If there's something that is so compelling that it's, it's too important that I really need to write this, then you have to make that decision and it could fracture a relationship. But by and large, because I'm not in that side of the business as much, don't usually have much of that conflict. But uh, if you do this job long enough, it's a, it's a people job. It's a, you have to talk, you have to get to know people, you have to build relationships and you have to build trust. And I don't think it's different than any other industry in that regard, uh, in that you have to be a man of your word or a woman of your, of your word. And, uh, you have to, I, like, I got to, um, uh, have the opportunity to interview Jim Buss a couple of times in person, the, uh, part owner of the Lakers and formerly, uh, the president of basketball operations. And, uh, he was very nervous the first time we met because most of the interviews he had done, the people who would write about him would take a very sharp point of view on who he was or what the Lakers had done. Uh, and it was very, he was very hesitant because he had not had a good experience in the media. And some of that was his own doing because he, he hadn't done a lot of media and, and he didn't know how to do it very well. It didn't come naturally to him uh, just personality wise. He's not a very public person. He's not very comfortable talking about himself. He's certainly not comfortable bragging about his accomplishments because he was part of the moves that helped the Lakers win the title with Pal Gasol, he was a part of that. Whether he was responsible or not, that's, that's hard to decide, but he was part responsible. Even if it's 1% or if it was 50% or if it was 20%, somewhere in that mix, he was partially responsible. Uh, so when the time came, I, I, you know, we talked, we got to know each other, and I wrote very honestly, but also I didn't attack the guy. I let him be him, and I wrote about him. And I portrayed the conversation as it happened. I didn't bring in pre preconceived notions of what other people had been saying about him or any about the Lakers moves or, you know, some, sometimes when you're the, the, the boss's kid, it's there are assumptions made that you're, you're born with a silver spoon in your mouth and you don't do anything and you haven't earned your keep. 
that's a subjective thing, whether it's true or false. I didn't get that impression. Uh, I thought he had a lot of positives to offer Lakers, and ultimately they made some mistakes that have hurt them. Uh, and why he doesn't have that job anymore, I think it's fair that he doesn't have that job anymore <laughs> because of the mistakes that were made. But I, I honored the conversation that we had and treated him fairly, and I think that's a, a part of it. And over time, if you're successful doing that, it sort of snowballs in that others see how you handle that uh, and they see that other people talk to you. Uh, so clearly, you know, I, I report salary data. I write I, at basketball insiders. I publish player salaries and have things that no one else has. So clearly I'm getting them because they're accurate. I'm getting them from somewhere that is within the system, within the NBA or, or around the accompanying bodies that around the NBA. And, uh, so I think people can see if, if those people can trust me, then maybe he's someone that is worth talking to and, and getting to know. And I've had teams reach out to me because I've written something that was like 95% clear and accurate, but there was a little area that needed a little work because it was very complex and out of the ordinary. And they've said, you know, you got almost all of it right, but here there's an area that was, let's help you fix this up. And, and, uh, I guess they can trust that I'm not going to reveal that they spoke to me about such things. And I, and I won't, I, I honor uh, my side of the bargain. And being able to do that, that obviously to your point allows you to have access to some of these other personalities to be able to report better, more accurate news. So who has been some of your biggest interviews or like say your first one, your first big interview that you'd been trying to get and you finally got that person? Well, I don't know if that is qualified exactly, but uh, the first interview I had of an NBA player at Staples Center was actually Chris Kamen of the Clippers. And uh, that was the first game I covered in Staples Center. And I had done some other stuff. I'd done like summer league over in, in Long Beach, which is now uh, no longer. Uh, that's since his moved to Las, uh, Las Vegas. But I'd talked to Mitch Kupchak before. I'd talked to various players of the Lakers, the Clippers, and then other teams. Uh, but this was the first time I'd been in a building. And it was funny because they had Chris, uh, they'd signed, they had, they had picked up Glenn Rice at some point. Glenn Rice won a championship obviously with the Lakers and he had done a few other things. And then this towards the end of his career, he was with the Clippers and they had cut him that day. So I went to Chris and I was asking him about Glenn being cut and he didn't even <laughs> being Chris Kamen, who was a bit of an eccentric guy, hadn't known that that had happened yet. So that was my first interview in person. Uh, and that was, that was, it was just great to be in the building, having a one-on-one -on -one, uh, that he didn't even know that this had happened. I remember him talking about how he had, I think he had gone like over a three year period, like he had something like five, seven shoe sizes, or maybe it was at nine. I don't know. It's like an outrageous number of shoe sizes as he grew over the course of like a three or four or five year period from <laughs> six foot to almost seven foot and uh, just fascinating stuff. But as far as like, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm a part of Kobe's muse, his, his film that he made, uh, about his life. Uh, you hear me asking him uh, after he tore his Achilles if this was the last we'd ever see of Kobe Bryant on the basketball court. Um, I've had some great moments, uh, definitely all blessings. It's too hard to pick one in particular, but just being able to be around the championships. Uh, I've seen the, the Warriors win championships in person. I've seen the Celtics 
uh, I've seen some pretty cool things. I, can't, I definitely can't complain about uh, my lot in life. Yeah, you've obviously had some moments covering the Lakers and just the NBA in general. And you mentioned Kobe being able to cover him. Is there a particular moment uh, that you remember most about covering Kobe that maybe some people don't know about? Well, a few people, I, I've, I've said this before, but uh, I went down to his camp in Santa Barbara uh, that he was, he, they have like a kid's camp where they, uh, it's just like any other basketball camp. And uh, we got to do a little media there and, and we were just talking kind of casually because uh, I have two daughters at the time. I don't think we had a third yet. I have three girls and he has three girls, but at the time he had two. And so he gave me advice that if we wanted a boy that I should uh, perform the necessary act with my wife while wearing socks. <laughs> and I, I, that I, first of all, I didn't follow that advice uh, and I had a daughter, but apparently Kobe didn't either because he had recently with his wife, uh, a third daughter as well. So may, maybe it's true what he said. And maybe both of us just didn't follow that, that, that sage advice that, that we I'm happy with the daughters I have, so I wouldn't have asked for anything different looking back. So it remains to be seen. We'll have to have somebody else test that theory out. (laughs) Now, so looking at Kobe, and we knew there were, I mean, obviously a lot of scrutiny around Kobe and his career in the NBA, but maybe not so much his rookie year like it is today with Lonzo Ball. So from your perspective, what has been the reception of Lonzo Ball in terms of you know the press, the fanfare, the scrutiny, all of that, relative to how it has been for other superstar athletes like LeBron or Kobe when they first entered the NBA? Well, I mean, it, it's a different era because of just the technologies and the amount of media. There's a lot more media than there used to be. Uh, but in the case of Lonzo, like when he had his draft workout over at the Lakers, there was more media there as, as you would have seen for any other event, any Kobe event, any giant event, there was some 40, 50, 60, maybe 70 media, uh, a ridiculous number for a guy who hadn't really achieved anything yet. Wasn't even their pick officially yet. Uh, a UCLA guy. So you could say, well, maybe cause it was maybe because the UCLA media was there, but that wasn't it. Uh, he came in as a superstar, which makes no sense because he hadn't even played yet. And so certainly when he struggled in his first month to shoot, everyone jumped off the bandwagon and decided he was a bust while without actually watching what was happening and, and his impact on the game. I think he's someone who actually is a very positive uh, player to have on, on your team. I think he helps his shooting has been good before he got hurt with a knee injury. He, he was shooting exceptionally well uh, in spot up situations, still can't shoot off the dribble, still can't really score attacking the basket yet. Not, not efficiently and not regularly, but, uh, he has a lot of talent and his personality is very, it's like he was born to disarm the media. He just answers so plainly and so unarguably to every <laughs> question you ask. It's a really strange thing. It's very hard to follow up his questions. There's no, I, if you say that there's some questions that, that irk a lot of journalists where you say, talk to me about X. It's, you're not really, for whatever reason, you're not supposed to say, talk to me about something. But he's somebody you, you just can't get to answer or talk about question. He just, he just, you can't get him to free associate. You can't get him to, he just answers the question is asked. 
he answers it in the most simple way possible. And he doesn't fall for any bait. He doesn't let you, you can't outsmart him at least so far. Uh, you can't like lawyer him into some sort of confession. (laughs) He is, um, he's well-trained in this way. And I think a lot of the hype comes from his father, who's obviously a huge presence. Uh, the articles that I've written two articles that relate to his father, uh, and they've done ridiculous numbers like Kobe, like two, three times what we do for Kobe. So obviously my editors were happy with that. And, uh, I think they've accepted that it's best to take a break from writing on it because it's a little ridiculous, uh, because he's just a dad and he doesn't know anything about basketball, at least, uh, from a, a pure sense of, of the team, the NBA, like he's out saying things like if they don't sign his kids that Lonzo will leave in a couple of years, but there's such a thing called restricted free agency and there's all kinds of, he'll, he'll say stuff, but I don't know what he's going to say in two years. So whatever he says today, I don't really care about because if he's talking about something in two years, the guy says so much, God knows what he'll say before two years from now. <laughs> that's right. So, and, and so, and that's where, yeah. And that's where you can come in to be able to let people know, no, there's more to this than just what he might say and what moves can be made because you know, the intricacies surrounding uh, the contracts, the salary caps. So how are you using all of your knowledge to be able to help paint a better picture for the normal fans out there? Well, uh, what, what they asked me to do on NBA TV specifically uh, is when there is some transaction to explain why, why it happened or where the team is going or in last year, I did the show last year for the trade deadline and there wasn't a tremendous amount of activity. There was some activity, but like the Boston Celtics did not make a big trade for Jimmy Butler. They did not make a big trade for Paul George and the basketball analysts were just, just, uh, irate about it. They, you know, at, at doing their job of, of breaking down how this is a team that has an opportunity in the East and they can win now and get past the Cavs. And yet they're not sacrificing the necessary pieces to do that. And I was able to say, look, they, they have uh, Gordon Hayward in their pocket, basically. Like they have 30 million needed to pay him. They still have this pick that's uh, at the time was the, uh, what was it? The Brooklyn Nets pick. Right. And so there, there's no reason to incrementally get better or make some move that maybe makes you better when you can be better for five, six, seven years, because if you can sign Gordon Hayward and unfortunately got hurt in the opening night of the season, but they could sign him for four years, which they did. And I knew he had a relationship with Brad Stevens and I had a sense that he wasn't staying in Utah based on for one, he signed an offer sheet to leave when he was a restricted free agent. So he tried to leave once already. So I didn't agree with the analysts there because from the math, looking at the numbers, looking at what I know of Danny Ainge, what I know of Mike Zarin, who's their, uh, they're basically their strategic planner. I didn't think they were going to be willing to give up a lot to make a move that was temporary. Uh, in the case of, uh, they still got their pick. They got Jason Tatum out of that pick and Jason Tatum has been great for them. And they have, Gordon Hayward, who would have been fantastic. They're still in first place in the East. And when Hayward gets healthy, which by the way, he might even be healthy enough to play in the, in the conference finals. If they get that far, I don't know if he will, I'm speculating, but he got hurt in October. If he can, he might be able to be playing may. I don't know for sure. Maybe not. Uh, 
but it's not out of the question. So uh, being able to communicate that to the fans, because at the time, a lot of Boston Celtic fans were believing the analysts who were saying this, that their team had screwed up and that they were holding on too tightly to things that weren't impactful. And I disagreed and was able to uh, explain it from my perspective, understanding the numbers, understanding the options, understanding how building a team is a long-term process. And as much as a shortcut sounds appealing, sometimes a shortcut could be the worst thing that you could ever do to your franchise. So with that, how is it looking from a perspective with the Cavaliers and their shakeup? And does that impact also the Lakers clearing some cap space for next season as well? So how does that all look from your perspective? Well, they were interesting gambles on both sides. Uh, the Cavaliers basically looking at their, their, their doom, if you were to call it that, in losing LeBron James, made a deal that has an opportunity to reinvigorate his passion for his home team and an opportunity for them to win again, whether they do or don't, and a chance that he might resign. They've improved their odds that he resigns. Now, again, it goes back to the, the percentages. If, if it was 10%, is it 50? If, if it was at 50, is it now 70? I don't know the numbers. Those numbers don't mean anything. He has a greater chance of staying now because they have a greater chance of winning. And he feels listened to because he was miserable construction of the team was poor and they went out and made some very bold moves to fix today. They didn't sacrifice tomorrow significantly because they still have a a pick that they had gotten for Kyrie Irving. That is another Brooklyn pick because the nets are, they, they they destroyed their future some time ago. Uh, But the, the Cavaliers have an opportunity to win now and they still have a chance that he resigns and maybe they did everything they needed to do to protect themselves. At the same time, the Lakers, they, the Cavaliers opened up an opportunity for the Lakers to steal LeBron this summer that, that they may not have had without this trade. So but from my point of view, if the Cavaliers accept that LeBron leaves, where do, why does it matter where he goes? It, it's better if he goes west so that they don't have to compete against LeBron in the east. And so there you have it. Maybe the Lakers, because they needed this help, uh, they make a risk. They get rid of two very nice young players, Jordan Clarkson and Larry Nance, guys who they valued highly. Uh, And they get a a former all-star, Isaiah Thomas, who may or may not be a part of their long-term plans. And they get the Cavaliers pick. But, man, they have an opportunity now to go after Paul George and LeBron James. And when you have Magic Johnson in the room with those guys, that's something that Jim Buss and Mitch Kupchak, the previous regime, did not have. The ability to close a deal, to be able to just communicate with players in a way that Magic can communicate, that's his greatest strength, in my mind, is that he'll be able to win these guys over with his huge, bigger-than-life personality. He's one of the best players who ever played the game. So he has that uh, credibility. Lakers are in a very strong position, and that's partially because of the move that the Cavs made. So maybe the Cavaliers' risk is why LeBron stays, or maybe that risk is why he leaves for the Lakers. And the exciting part, and it kind of goes back to those our early part of the conversation, is these real-life dramas, we don't know what's going to happen. Uh, it's going to impact a tremendous amount of people. It's going to impact the city of Cleveland, Cleveland significantly because LeBron James is basically a cottage industry that brings in a tremendous amount of money into that community. And if he's no longer there, 
uh, that that that's a big loss. And at the same time, the Lakers have been trying to get back on top since Kobe tore his Achilles, and that's a big step forward and changes their fortunes as well. So. A lot to be seen. I can't wait to see how it all plays out. That's right. There is a lot of change still. This is just the beginning of it. And so speaking of change, how has your reporting changed over the years based on how the industry is changing with technology and just the social media aspect of everything? Well, I, I was an early adopter of, of the of, of Internet. Uh, really, I, most, most reporters came up through print. I came up through uh, fan based websites. And so when I first got there, print media was by and large, the, the other writers were like, who the heck's this guy? And what is he doing? And <laughs> it took a while. Yeah. It took a while. I was not initially embraced cause it was different. And, but I'm, I'm, you just move forward at, at a positive pace and, and you be a positive person and try to help people try to get to know people and how difficult was that though then early on if you're getting this pushback from the traditional reporters uh, I mean I'm someone who's gonna work at what I do well and if there are people who are giving dirty looks I'm not gonna notice because I'm doing my thing and if I do my thing well uh, I feel like I'm gonna succeed and it doesn't matter if someone else doesn't want me to succeed I'm going to do my best to succeed, but you also have to work around and with people and collaborate. So over time, initially I wasn't necessarily welcome there, but at the same time they were professional. No one was you know, uh, aggressive, uh, passive aggressive, certainly, okay. <laughs> uh, but it was a long time ago. Uh, and gradually as, as the, the world shifted, people started to see that, okay, not only is online a thing, it's actually the thing that's replacing the thing that I'm doing. And what was interesting is I, I was always trying to get to print and all the people in print were rushing to get to what I wanted to do. Cause I, <laughs> so I ended up working for the LA times for four years and I, I did uh, mostly their blog, which was online, but I did a lot of work uh, in print as well. So it was very cool to eventually uh, have a, you know, some stories, some, as they call it, top of the fold stories for in the sports section where you're the top, the front page on the top, uh, just a, a couple articles here and there that were, uh, had my byline. So very cool. But gradually, uh, of course, the LA Times had a lot of financial problems, still does. Uh, and so uh, eventually moved on to Bleacher Report, which is an online media, which is definitely where I'm comfortable. And early in, in the early days, I used to send out emails to I had an email list and I would send out a notification. The email to everyone on that list, it grew pretty sizable. And then over time, I, that really was replaced by Twitter. You tweet it once, and anybody who follows you can see and find your links. And uh, Twitter's been good to me, Facebook, uh, the various platforms. Yeah, and then obviously, yeah, that's your way to broadcast in a much grander scale. Absolutely. It's easier to reach your audience directly. And uh, for, it, it, it's, uh, I do my best to answer everyone I, I can when they reach out to me. Uh, on Twitter, I, I can't respond to all of them. And when things are happening, like a trade deadline or if I'm on TV or if I'm, there are times I can't possibly get to everything. So I just, it's a reality, but I do it when I, when I can, I, I, I keep in touch. I, I listen to the fans because I think their voice helps guide me to where I need to be uh, as far as investigating and studying and what questions I need to ask. I can come up with a lot of good questions pretty quickly, but uh, I rely on, on fans as well to help push me in the right direction to make sure 
I, I'm asking the right questions because there might not be something I'm thinking of, but I keep getting asked it on Twitter. I, I'm curious. Uh, I want to answer that question for the fans as well. So certainly uh, a great tool. Uh, it's a great tool also for me to connect to other journalists. That's really, I think, how it's helped. A lot of journalists reach out to me for help uh, with the area that I'm an expert in. Uh, and you could talk directly to your fans. You could talk to the players. If they'll respond, uh, it's just a great platform. I, I like the way that the industry has evolved on that side. I wish print was still healthy, but unfortunately, they really struggled. And what about the side of the print or the social media versus being in front of the camera like you've been able to do with NBA TV? Which do you prefer more? Uh, well, I, initially, I didn't like uh, the idea of TV early on uh, because the challenge is, is that uh, I can write in depth and spell out something very clearly and methodologically in print. And then over time, I started to do a lot of radio and, and some podcasts. And uh, it takes a lot of time, like in a very short radio hit, it's hard to communicate uh, exactly what I mean. TV is like even harder because even if, if I'm on radio, I can easily look at the numbers as I talk. I can look at an article. I don't have to be selling what it is to the camera, et cetera. Uh, so in TV, there, it's a little bit harder to communicate that. So I've, I, this is my second year doing this. Uh, so I've, I feel like I've improved at it, got more of a feel for it, put a lot more time into preparation, able to pull up cheat sheets. Initially, they didn't, they didn't have a place for me to access my computer very easily. Uh, so now I've, I've, you know, they've, they make sure that I, if I need, you know, this way I can pull up some bullet points that I've spelled out for myself. Because it's easy, if you ask me to talk about a player and how they're going to fit, I don't need to memorize certain figures and numbers. It's very different when we're talking about you know, those exact, like, do they have 13 or do they have 16? I don't know. That that matters a whole bunch in some context. And it's a lot harder to remember every, you know, when you're talking 30 teams and almost 500 players. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's, a, it's a lot. So I have, to, I have to be able to talk any team at any moment. And... Uh, it's still a learning process because I'm new, but uh, the people over at NBA TV uh, are really, really good at letting people be who they are uh, and let them succeed as themselves. And I'm not an actor. I'm not somebody who has years of training on television. I never went to broadcasting school or anything like that. And they don't expect that or want that. They just want me to be the guy who knows what he knows and uh, want me to be comfortable to express it as, as easily and as clearly as I can. So they put you in a good environment. So I feel really lucky to have that they reached out to me and that this has been uh, my fate to date. And so uh, one of those things that you just, uh, I enjoy it tremendously. It's definitely, it's definitely a trip. I got to sit next to Kenny Smith at some point uh, at the draft and talk basketball on TV with Kenny Smith. And I've been watching, you know, the inside the NBA show for forever. And so they're, those guys are hysterical. So it was, a real delight to be able to do that. And are those guys just as funny off the camera as they are on the camera? Yeah, I didn't get to work with, I, I know Shaq through the years. Um, I didn't get a chance to work with Barkley. I've met Ernie. I've met Barkley in the past. Uh, but uh, working with Kenny, it, he's extremely, he's ex just extremely sharp. It's, it's, and he's very witty. And, uh, and he's extremely opinionated. And he's really forceful with, putting his opinion out there because that's what that show is. Uh, and I was, I'm a rookie. So I, I, I didn't want to say something specifically negative 
about a player. So I was just kind of dancing around how the kid couldn't shoot a lick. And he was saying, you, you got to come out, you know, but, um, at the same time, like he was very helpful. There was a moment where like, I didn't know that we were coming back. So he tapped me, you know, like in a, in a just like, Hey, Hey, you know, let me make sure I'm, I'm, I'm where I'm supposed to be. So he was looking out for me. So the one experience I have very cool, I uh, got to jaw with him a little bit, which was, you know, you, you got to be sharp. The, the wit is, is impressive. Definitely. Uh, it, it's a, it's a, form of, of intelligence that you have to be really prepared for. I can only imagine, and obviously being on the camera, but it's great that he was coaching you a little bit. And speaking of coaching, what words of wisdom would you give new reporters coming up into this era of technology, social media, and trying to break into the industry, or even just life advice? Well, I mean, just if you're going to do something, do it well. Uh, don't have to do it. Don't, don't get into it if you're not interested in really doing it right. Uh, but understand that you're not going to know how to do it the way that you want to do it initially. So keep at it. Uh, I found that by writing a lot, you build up chops, you build up the ability to just spit out a story without having to think about the mechanics, which is very helpful because early on that doesn't come naturally. Uh, you can get stuck. And if you're stuck, start writing the conclusion. Uh, don't start at the beginning of the story, write the middle, write any part that you can write that is coming naturally. And that's going to lead to something else coming out. And then when you've got everything written, you may look at it and it's a complete mess. And then you reorder the whole thing. And it's like, wow, I actually wrote something that makes sense. Uh, so that's one, one writing tip right there. Uh, as far as relationships, you have to go out and make them. You can't be shy. Uh, at the same time, you don't want to be there on the first day and be super aggressive and pushy and give off the wrong impression. So it's always a balancing act of knowing when to be pushy and making yourself, uh, you sign back to talk over other reporters to get my question in. Otherwise it won't get asked. And when it's time to back off and let someone else do their thing and, and, and mind the relationships, not just with the team, but with the other reporters, with the players, with, uh, and when I say team, like the PR or the executives, uh, the players, Anybody you might have to deal with and the fans, same thing. Treat everyone with the same kind of respect that you would want to be treated. It's some simple golden rule type stuff. Uh, but if, if you're not, don't, just don't do it just to do it. Do it because you're passionate about it. Do things that make you, uh, that, that you, if you're going to be working at three in the morning on something, it better be something that you really like to do. Without a doubt. And where were you when I needed you to help me coach through some term papers back in college to start at the conclusion if you're stuck? I love that advice. I wish I would have had that years ago. One last question then, just wrapping things up. What do you take or what are you hoping that your daughters are going to learn and pick up from playing sports and how it can impact their life? Well, uh, for one uh, wanted to make sure that they were active because it's easy in this day and age. We talk about social media for young people to just be on their phones and tablets and computers or in front of the TV. Uh, and it can be really easy just to not even get out there and exercise. So that's part of it. Also learning the team concept, uh, putting team before yourself, really understanding the team concept of how to play together, how to sacrifice, how to help, how to assert yourself. Uh, my oldest, when she made her first basket, uh, was just un an unbelievable moment for her and her expression of 
of joy at having achieved that after some time was just incredible. My middle one uh, hit a couple of buzzer beaters, a game winner. Uh, you you can't you can't create that scenario. You can't uh, in life like frame that. You can't stage that. The moment that they have uh, an opportunity that when the game is on the line to be the one to hit to take that shot and to hit it. And then my youngest, she just this is for her. It's the most she's the most passionate and most serious about playing. So she wants to practice every day. She wants to get out there and play. Uh, and to see her grow from being a kid who, uh, just was younger than everybody else, but trying to play up, we had her playing in the big gym when she was six, even though the age requirement was eight <laughs> uh, or nine, even <laughs> we had her come up really early, uh, because, uh, we really wanted her to learn at a higher level. And, and now she's just dominating games and was named to the all-star team. So really fun stuff. Uh, but really just want, there's so much to be gotten out of sport. Uh, there, there are a lot of statistics and numbers, especially for young ladies uh, and abuse and, and how uh, sports and history and background in sports leads to lower numbers in that regard. So I, I think it's a self-esteem thing. I think it's uh, uh, learning how to communicate, learning how to be tough and fight. Basketball is a tough game. You can't just go out there and let someone take your, the ball from you. You got to go <laughs> fight for what's yours. And so, uh, I think there's a lot that can be learned from it. And uh, mostly I just want them to love the game and, and uh, enjoy. I want them to be able to turn in a game and know what's happening. They don't have to be diehard, but just to watch it and be like, you know, understand what's going on and to get some joy out of it. Well, I think you're doing a tremendous job by getting involved with them. And I think that's probably even going to be more impactful than them just playing the game is that they know their dad has been with them and coaching them. So I commend you on that. And, more importantly, I really thank you for your time, uh, Eric. I know I stole way too much of your time, but as a basketball guy, I could talk to you for hours, especially getting <laughs> down to the nitty-gritty of the intricacies of really how these teams are built, because I think it's fascinating as well from a numbers perspective. But thank you so much, Eric. Anytime. Enjoyed it. Thanks for having me on. Obviously, understanding specific numbers and certain details seems to come easy to Eric and something that he really enjoys, but he also had that courage to start an internet blog years ago going outside the norm of traditional reporting, and now he's become one of the most sought-after salary cap experts in the NBA, trusted by not only other reporters, but also other NBA personnel. And also, hey, don't forget about his skills as a DJ and spinning those records, which only exemplifies there's truly more than meets the eye. Now that finishes episode 51. And remember, focus forward so we don't live in the past. All the best, everyone. You've been listening to Rich Take on Sports, the sports podcast with life. Visit richtakeonsports.com to subscribe and catch up on any episodes you might have missed. You can also follow us on Twitter at Rich Take Sports. Thanks for listening.